Well, dear listener, thank you for uh, hmm. listening to the podcast while we were gone. Yeah. But we're back. We're back. We're back, baby. Back in action. 2021. Here we are. Oh, geez. I know, right? Can you believe it? Another year, another, we had a whole... another beer. <laughs> Not on the premise. No, that's another podcast, Chad. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so we're back. Yeah, it's 2021, and we have got a lot of exciting interviews planned for this year. And first of all, I'd like to mention, for those of you who know, the premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. Gosh, I hope you know by now. I would think so. Right? I mean, unless, you, unless, of course, you skip at the beginning Possibly the middle and the end. Which is credits. entirely possible and I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, I've only worked hours, <laughs> well, minutes on that theme song. That's true. People that, that's, should listen to it. That's my you. blood, sweat, and tears right there. It's a really good theme song. You're good. <laughs> I, I love it. All right. All right. So, so, but here's the deal. We have our virtual event planned for 2021. Two days of programming. They're two weeks apart on July 17th and july 31st so check out the website at san diego writers festival.com there you go all right well we're so glad you're back i'm excited about this year we have a lot happening and today we are sharing an interview that we recorded for warwick's and as you know we work with warwick's in la jolla they are a local boutique bookstore we love to support local. Ooh, boutique even. Yeah, it's such a great bookstore. If you haven't gone in and checked it out, please do. If you're visiting San Diego, if you're out of, if you're from out of town, they just. Are if such you're a, from out of town, why are you traveling? Honestly, well, or that's your true. mask. Hey, it's COVID is <laughs> on the, its way out. Oh, hopefully. We're hoping. We're hoping. I saw some numbers went down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, everyone's getting vaccines except us. Everyone but us, because we never leave our house or this podcast room. Right. <laughs> this is what we do. We just sit here and podcast all day, every day for you, dear listener. So, yeah, I, we've got another one coming up here in a couple couple seconds. Uh, this is a Warwick's author, and I hope you'll sit back and enjoy it. And don't skip the ads. Don't skip the ads. I'm kidding. There are no ads. We only have like the outro. and. Well, our ads are good, though. It's Warwick's, you know, support local. Again, the San Diego Writers Festival, which, you know, the whole point of the premise is to bring industry leaders and book authors and publishing experts to you. So yeah, the ads are important. Yeah. San Diego Writers Festival.com. All right. Until next time, enjoy this interview. Hi, Olga. How are you? Jennifer, good. How are you? Very good. I'm very excited to talk to you about this lovely book. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for, of course. Yeah, I feel honored. I'm going to hold it up for our viewers, um, for our listeners. Definitely go check this out on the Warwick's website. You can get it wherever books are sold, of course. We recommend you get it from Warwick's. I love the color. Um, I'm going to start by reading your bio, and then we'll jump in. Olga Grushin was born in Moscow and moved to the United States at 18. She is the author, author of three previous novels, 40 Rooms, The Line, and The Dream Life of Sukhanov. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> Sukhanov. We went over this earlier. Say it for me. Sukhanov. Sukhanov. Thank you. 
Her debut, The Dream Life of Suhanov, won the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award, earned her a place on Granta's Once a Decade Best Young American Novelist list, and was one of the New York Times notable books of the year. Both it and The Line were among the Washington Post's 10 best books of the year, and 40 Rooms was named a Kirkist Review's best book fiction of the year. Grushin writes in English, and her work has been translated into 16 languages. She lives outside Washington, D.C. with her two children. 17 as of today. I just learned that I was being translated into Farsi. So that's... Oh, that's pretty exciting. Congratulations. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go on. Yeah, I was going to say that might be one of the few languages you don't speak, right? No, I actually don't speak that many. Um, I know you you were trying to learn French when you were younger, and apparently your father wasn't as patient as your mom, so they had you switch to English so that your mom could teach you English. That is correct. So my father spoke French in the family, and my mother spoke English, and I started off with French, and it uh, turned out that he was a very impatient teacher, <laughs> as far as I was concerned. So after <laughs> a few stressful sessions, my mom said, you know what, let's do English. So right. this, is how, this is how it turned out that I'm writing in English. Yeah, I was going to say. And now, it's, in, yeah, it's incredible you write your books in English. I was going to ask this later, but I think I would like to ask you now, even though your native tongue is Russian, you choose to write in English. Can you talk about your decision to to write in English and if it has changed the way the words flow from your brain? I imagine you think different, differently in Russian than you do in English. And do you think, do you have to go back and think about how you would like your Russian heritage to seep onto the page after you've written it in English? Talk, us, talk to us about your process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So it really was not a thought out decision in a way. It was an accident because I always knew I was going to be a writer or always was hoping I would be a writer. I wanted to write since I was four. Um, mm-hmm. and I, uh, in Russia, I attended journalism school. So I wrote um, quite a bit in Russian before I came to America, but I came here for mm-hmm. college at 18. And um, then, of course, I had to switch to English. And eventually, I realized that if I wanted to realize my dream of publishing fiction, then I had to do so in English. Mm-hmm. A very traumatic moment, um, mm-hmm. really kind of a traumatic process, because I felt that by then, I had spent years working in Russian, and I felt like the language was really my own in many ways. It's very important to me when I write my books to have an interesting language. You know, it's so much of what I love about literature is really about the language. And so um, the decision to just abandon my native tongue and uh, work in a completely different paradigm was um, really life-changing. But at the same time, Russian and English are so different, and you can do so many different things in these two languages. Mm. Um, In a way, I feel like it's almost more helpful or it makes my approach to language, you know, maybe more layered because I can uh, compare the two and I can sort of um, think in both. And it really depends on what I'm writing to answer a second half of your question of how I um, use my Russian heritage. Um, Mm. When I write on Russian subjects, uh, then I very much have a kind of a Russian brand of English almost. My first novel and my second novels were not novel were both set in the Soviet Union, 
And uh, I felt like I was writing with English words, but in many ways in, in Russian or the, the sort of the underlying structure of, you know, the, the kind of the bones of, of the language felt very Russian. And there are mm. air phrases, there are um, kind of quotations from poems and allusions to Russian classics that I was weaving into the text. So it felt very kind of rich and elusive in a Russian sort of way. Uh, but for my next two books, um, that was much less the case because they were um, American in their setting in the first case, and of course, fairy tale <laughs> setting for my most uh, recent book. And so there I was really approaching English more or less as English. And I'm sure, you know, I I don't have, I will never have the exactly the native ear for the language, but, um, and I think that gives me kind of a different angle on the language, but, um, but yeah, it really depends on what I'm writing about. And, and you can do completely different things in both languages, which is, you know, to me, very interesting. Um, I find your, your writing to be absolutely beautiful. And, you know, I have a love for Russian literature going back, you know, to when I even in when I was a teenager reading, reading Russian literature. So uh, as I was reading this, I kept asking myself, what is her native tongue? Because it did not feel like it was your second language. I felt that it flowed. It had a beauty and there's definitely a cadence to Russian writers that we don't see as much in America. And I felt you did have some of that. Sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Thank you for saying it. But I, you know, I, I've lived here basically most of my adult life because you, know, mm-hmm. you were 18. Yeah. I was so basically, I grew up here and, you know, I, I became an adult here in many ways. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it does feel like it, you know, it pretty much, I do think of English as my native language now, but I think I have two, you know, and I always, it's yeah. such, such a commonly quoted expression, but, you know, Charlemagne said, you learn another language, you gain another soul and it's often quoted, but I just, I love that, you know, it really mm. does you kind of a different angle from which to approach the world. And when you think about it, the languages really are so different. You know, English is maybe richer in vocabulary. Russian has um, kind of richer emotional expressiveness. So you can play with both. And I think it mm. helps. You know, another interesting thing is so many writers these days come from different cultures. It's not just me. There's so many of us coming from uh, different languages, you know, Chinese or, you know, also Russian or Spanish and writing in English as a second language. And I, I feel that just really enriches the literature. So. I agree. Well, and I wonder, if, you know, for aspiring writers out there, do, do you have to write in English? I mean, if you want to make it in America as a writer, I mean, to, to submit something, you can't submit something in Russian and expect them to translate it. So it's really, you were kind of, your hand was forced, I imagine. But that's, that's exactly right. You know, I was, uh, when I was in college, actually, I had an interesting experience. Uh, because I um, I went to Emory University. That's why I came here. I studied at Emory. And I had On a, a full ride, right? You were given a full scholarship oh, to Emory. Oh, I, I came with $4 in my pocket. And that was, I felt <laughs> that was actually a fortune uh, because my parents and their friends pulled their resources together and they gave me these $4 and I had no idea what it meant. To me, it felt like wow. this man's fortune. And so uh, <laughs> I was a it was a Delta plane. The flight was, of course, paid for by Emory University. Um, the stewardess approached me with an offer of headphones, and it turned out that they cost five. 
And that was my rude awakening. Like, you were oh. like, oh. That's all I had. So, um, of course, I, I had the uh, full scholarship from Emory University. But um, I took um, one Russian literature class my first semester. And, uh, oh, wow. We were allowed to, well, they picked the classes for me before I came um, because um, I, you know, I didn't understand the whole choosing classes. That was not how Russian education worked. Mm. Uh, we choose our, our, um, yeah, our curriculum. So they picked for me the first semester and thought that would be an easier way to transition. And um, uh, one of the classes was Russian literature, what we were actually allowed to write in Russian. And they thought mm. that was an easier way. And I started writing my essays in Russian. And then the uh, professor asked, well, could you actually translate one of the essays into English? And I did for him. And then he said, you know, it's an interesting thing. I look at your Russian and your English side by side. And your English is almost more powerful because it's stripped mm. of all the kind of excessive, you know, purple passages, if you will, or expressions or whatever. And and, and some people who read my English will not think that. <laughs> because that's just not right. You know, you know, I do like my adjectives. But uh, uh, but my Russian was a lot more so, believe it or mm. not. So he said, you know, you almost get the point across uh, in a kind of more direct fashion in English. So maybe try writing in English from now on. And that really Interesting. helped me. I eventually made that leap. Yeah. Know, I'm giving up my native tongue. But on the other hand, perhaps I'm gaining something, maybe some shortcut, maybe, you know. Yeah, I think, honestly, we could talk for an hour about that. I find it endlessly fascinating, but we really need to talk about So I I loved this book. I I absolutely loved it. Uh, It begins like a fairy tale, as we would expect, but it veers into magical realism for me um, and self-reflection, sort of forcing the reader to ask the question, you know, what is a happy ending? What is a happy life? And The Charmed Wife really surprised me in a lot of ways. You did stuff I was not expecting. It pulled me along into this world of Cinderella, who at one point I wonder, has she gone mad? Is she just this real woman who thinks she's Cinderella and her head is like completely lost herself because she's in an abusive relationship? Is this a fantasy of the mind? Like I found myself guessing, or are we in a fantasy world for real? This is really happening. So was was that your intention? Tension to sort of make the reader sort of guess if it was, yeah, tell us, tell us more. It really was. So uh, this book is uh, an unusual book for me because it really falls between the genres. It falls between fantasy and realism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to examine the kind of your happy, happy ending fairy tales, but I wanted to look at them from uh, the perspective of modern life. So when I wrote it, I almost thought about um, examining contemporary issues of women's lives, you know, uh, marriage, romantic expectations, age, um, divorce, motherhood, but through the fairy tale metaphors. So that was always what was driving me. And I, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, absolutely there are different interpretations possible in the book and that's intentional. And you can see it mm. from one angle or the other angle. Um, and I, I actually, in, in the book, at some point, I talk about it as well. But you know this, um, the that famous rabbit uh, duck uh, image, you know, you look at it from one angle and it's a duck and you look at it from another angle, it's a rabbit. So I sort yes. of had that in mind uh, when I was writing it. And hmm. I was interested in kind of playing with kind of a 
combination of the two. So you don't quite know where you're at because you were in this fantasy world and yet you had little, you know, pings of reality. And then you're, you know, maybe in a realistic setting, but then you still have princesses and, you know. Yeah, yeah. And magicians. So absolutely, that was that was very much intentional. Well, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed how it, it kept me guessing. And I there's so much about so many great legends and fairy tales and mythology that have all woven into this world, this fairy tale world that you've created. I'd like to know a little bit about the research that went into writing this book. Mm-hmm. So, well, the main part of it is I'm a big reader of fairy tales myself. And mm-hmm. I, as a child, that was pretty much my favorite reading. Um, mm continued reading them. I love children's books to this day and uh, fairy tales as well. Uh, But with um, time, I started moving more toward uh, subversive fairy tales, more obscure fairy tales, you know, um, some of the original ones that are much darker than what we're used to, the the, Disney versions, but also Angela Carter and Emma Donoghue. And there's so many uh, writers who play with these, um, you know, sort of your traditional happily ever after narratives. And so that was already, uh, and, and that was part of what gave me the idea, the fact that I have always been fascinated by the fairy tales. And um, it was always sort of in the back of my mind that I would like to explore these kinds of, you know, the archetypes and the, you know, kind of the paradigms present in them. Uh, but specifically for this book, once I knew I was writing it, um, I did read a lot of fairy tale theory, and that was mostly new to me. Uh, so mm. I the history of the fairy tales and a lot on Brothers Grimm and, you know, 17th century French fairy tales. And also because Cinderella was the central narrative of the book, um, I read a lot of different versions, not of retellings of Cinderella. I stayed away from those mostly, but Mm -hmm. of the actual story of Cinderella going back centuries, you know, back to the medieval Chinese version. That's one of the earliest ones. And some scholars say the earliest one. There's a version with a fish and a shoe, and it's from mm-hmm. China. So there, there are volumes and volumes of specifically Cinderella narratives, and those are fascinating to me. There's, you know, just uh, um, different kind of different angles of looking at the same story, and that was very much present in the back of my mind when I was conceiving my own story because it's like, you know, sort of taking a diamond of this kind of kernel of the idea and then turning it from many, many different angles and looking at it, you know, this way and that way and just playing mm. with it. Which is really life, the the human experience, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wonder, were you ever worried that people would dismiss this book as just another fairy tale? Well, so I think this And not book- take it seriously as literary fiction? So, you know, it, it depends on sort of what mindset you approach it. And I think it goes either way because people who... Uh, love literary fiction may balk at the talking mice and people who want your straightforward fantasy may get very unsettled by <laughs> happening in the book. But Passes, I think, yeah. That, yeah, but you know, I know that I myself would be interested in a book like this. So I know that while this book is not for everyone, and I mean, which what book is, um, I hope that it will find the readers you know, who love literary fiction, um, love books that, you know, kind of, um, turn your expectations upside down, but at the same time, mm-hmm. don't mind mm-hmm. having magicians and talking mice in their books. So <laughs> it's, a, I, it's a different book. It's a departure, you know, it's, it was, it, I yeah. did it, but you know, I, you I took a risk, like, yeah. I took a risk, but you know, if you don't take risks, why bother writing? You know, I don't want to write the same story every time. So 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the mice and, you know, the concurring story, the saga over time of the mice. I loved it. In some ways, in the beginning, it was my favorite part. You know, you go through an evolution and the mice do, so to speak. They seem to experience what we, we might even call the age of enlightenment. And they go through several periods in the human, <laughs> what the humans have experienced through ages of time. And I read, I think it was in your acknowledgments that this idea came from real mice who you, in fact, fed with an eyedropper. Tell us about the real mice, Brian Nibbles, and, and how they came to take place in this book. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, of course, the Cinderella story does have mice in it, but I was never really going to, um, or at least not in the beginning, that was not part of the story. I just mentioned mm. that endedly in, in the very beginning. Um, but then they did sort of creep into my plans. And we did have this um, incident that happened in our basement, we found a couple of blind, tiny baby mice. Hmm. Um, clearly there, we have dogs on both sides with neighbors. So clearly the dog had gotten the, you know, the mother probably, and these little blind, you know, mouselings <laughs> crawled into our basement. So three just, blind mice by chance? Just two. two, no. just two. <laughs> so only two. Yeah. But then my kids were really interested in saving them. And I read online, you know, what should you do? I had no idea what to do. So I bought this. I went to, a, you know, a pharmacy and bought this eyedropper and tried to dilute peanut butter with milk. It was this big thing. And I tried to feed them from the eyedropper and actually stayed up all night doing so. But one of them died. Mm. Um, and my children were asleep because it happened at some three in the morning. And I was distraught as to how to tell them because they were really into the mice. But then I happened to go down to the basement that same night and I found a third blind mice. <laughs> <laughs> That's three. <laughs> then I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull the, uh, you know, your goldfish trick. It's the same goldfish. So I took um, the mouse who sadly died and replaced him with a new mouse. And in the morning presented this as, oh, still Brian Nibbles, but it wasn't. It was Brian Nibbles, the second. Um, and that gave me this idea of successive generations of mice, because, of course, mice, even fairy tale mice, don't live that long. And so yeah. in the book, the original companions of Cinderella eventually die of happy old age, but they pass on the mantle to uh, their offspring because they don't want the princess to be upset. And so starts the saga of the mice and then they go through mm -hmm. many generations. And when I thought about it, I really envisioned the story as a kind of a downstairs counterpart to the upstairs component mm -hmm. of the main storyline, because sure. it felt like it needed to be balanced. So, you know, the Cinderella story, it's this very kind of vapid romance obsessed plot um, <laughs> as it starts. Right. Um, which is your typical, you know, kind of pastel colored, you know, uh, fairy, fairyland princess. And then the mice, they have wars and they have revolutions and they have. Totally. <laughs> and there's drama and there's. So it was it, to me, it was like, you know, kind of the real problems of the world versus the kind of waltzing and um, stressing other over love <laughs> issues upstairs. So that was the idea behind having sort of two parallel narratives in the book. And they do, the mice do play actually a part in the plot. Um, 
toward the end, they're, they're, they're essential to the book because toward the end, uh, we were talking about different interpretations. So uh, if you read the story closely, and there are many, many different Easter eggs in the book and many different sort of little connections. But if you read the story closely, in one of the last um, sections where the mice appear, there's sort of another clue that gives you a different angle on the whole book, and you can see it in a different sort of way. Uh, mm. that's the, <laughs> so they, they do have a, a plot significance, too. Keep people guessing. Well, I loved it. It did add to her story in a way that I think it gave you as a writer the opportunity to say things not quite as overtly, that you were able to sort of slide into the experience of just being human and what it means to be human and, you know, experience life. And for the princess, she's in a dream world. And I want to talk about dreamscapes and your use of dreamscapes in, you know, the, the, your literary work. I know you've done this in some of your past books as well. I, as I was reading this, the charmed wife was like slowly waking up from a fantastic dream for me, right? Like as the whole book unfolds, it's like kind of slowly waking up, steeped in the fairy tale world of Cinderella, but slowly bringing our world into her world, so to speak, it's sort of seeping in through the cracks um, and beginning to merge. Was this, obviously you consciously planned this. Um, mm -hmm. Did you mean to do that from the very beginning? Did that happen organically during the process? Mm -hmm. How did that come to be? Uh, that, by the way, that's a wonderful way of describing it. Thank you so much for, um, for saying it like that. That's, that's perfect. Um, yes, I absolutely meant it from the beginning. And that, you know, it was uh, technically challenging, but I feel like in all of my books, there are different technical challenges. Um, mm. I kind of try to deal with, you know, in the first book, I was in the past versus the present. And then the second book, I was uh, three or four different points of view that wove in and out. Um, and in the third book, um, the settings were 40 rooms and each story was like a short, each chapter was like a short story within its room. So I, I like playing with these kind of technical constraints uh, or technical challenges, if you will. So in this book, um, the idea was to slowly move the narrative into a completely different place and time and do it so gradually that yeah. you really see what's happening. You know, and at first you see it and you think, oh, you know, is this an error or, or something? But then it, it slowly it moves and then you kind of, you come to a place that is completely not where you started from. And yeah. uh, it was, it was of course very much intentional. I find that in all of my work, I'm very interested in how dreams and reality intersect and this mm. kind of the gray area between the two where mm. you're not quite sure which is which and you know, that's fascinating to me. And I play with it in all of my books to different extents. So there, you know, there's some, I mean, people say magic realism. I'm not exactly comfortable with the term. Um, mm. There is some of that kind of magical, fantastical, if you will, element in all of my works, you know, and you wonder what is happening. But more so in this book than anywhere else, because that's sort of the whole setting. The whole point. Yeah, <laughs> it's part of the dream world, if you will. But you yeah. can also see it from a different angle. I, you know, I would never do the. Oh, and then she woke up, and it was a dream. That to me is not interesting. <laughs> so it's certainly not that kind of a book. Um, but yeah, but it was that sort of playing with the different, you know, with the correspondences between reality and fantasy was, you know, what, for me, it was, you know, what what I wanted to explore. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. It was, 
I was really impressed with how you wove it together because it could have felt lazy and it could have felt like, oh, well, that was that was easy to do, you know, because you have that opportunity to just be like, oh, that was just a dream. But you never went there. You never allowed it to just be that simple. You know, things were slowly seeping in. There's a certain pacing that this book has that I think is really speaks a lot to who you are as a writer and how you write. Can we can we talk about your process and how you sit down and plan out a book? Mm-hmm. Um, did you, do you have an outline? Are you an outline writer? Or are you more, t- talk to us about that. Yeah, I, I am an outline writer. Uh, in the past, I used to be a lot more structured than I am now. I've learned to allow myself a little more freedom um, mm-hmm. because it's mainly more interesting to me as a writer. You know, once you mm-hmm. spend two, three years living with a certain book, I have to leave myself <laughs> areas in which to play. Um, yeah. But yes, I, I have an outline always. And what I usually do is um, there's usually a period where I don't force myself to write, but I read a lot and I think a lot and I take a lot of notes. So for every book, I have a notebook that I start. And I spend, it depends on the, on the project, but I usually spend at least a few months just um, assembling a pile of books and reading through them and taking notes and writing down images or quotations or, you know, what have you. And then usually one morning and it's not planned. I just feel like, okay, I have enough. I'm ready. <laughs> a lot of, you know, material accumulated. So then I sit down and I read through the whole notebook at once and then mm that in mind, I start writing out the outline. And the notebook wow. will have parts of the outline. It will have, oh, I can do this or I can do that. But these ideas are very often contradictory. And it's when I sit down and see them all at once, then I think, okay, I'm going to use that. I'm going to abandon that. You know, so, and then it sort of becomes this coherent outline and I write that out. And usually it's short, it's two, three pages. Like I said, in the beginning, I was a lot more structured. When I wrote Suhana, for example, I knew that there would be 23 chapters in the book because the story opens up, um, there was a momentous decision in Sohana's life, and the story opens up 23 years later. And then he goes back looking at it. So it's, uh, it takes place in 1985 in the Soviet Union, but he looks at 1962. And mm. so I knew there would be 23 chapters, and I had them all written down, you know, and they're actually, you know, it's, it was a lot more structured. So with this particular book, I did not have a number of chapters. Um, figured out and it was it was a lot more fluid but i did have an outline and i and i usually actually at some point shortly into the writing process i know the last sentence of the book and just my head and so for all of the books i i know usually the last sentence and then it's kind wow of there. that's <laughs> but, beautiful yeah i i plan things you know that's um, awesome yeah it's, it's funny sometimes yeah i'm sorry go ahead no you go ahead so sometimes, you know, um, writers talk about how their characters surprise them and they do things, you know, oh, my characters come alive and mm. mine don't. <laughs> I mean, they do to a certain extent. You have, you get these ideas when you write, you know, suddenly things just kind of pop into your head. But I, I know where the story is going. I know what I want to do with it. Mm. Okay. I. I wonder, talk, can, do you mind talking about how you broke into the publishing industry and how you... Of course sought out an agent and, and what was that like with your first book? And are you with the same publisher and the same agent I, that you I, were with you? I am. So my publisher is and uh, my agent is Warren Frazier. And I've been just incredibly lucky with both the publishing house and the agent. Um, yeah. So um, 
it was a very straightforward process is sort of the way I guess it's supposed to happen when you have no connections and you just want to be a writer because um, <laughs> languages. And then uh, I started trying to write my first short stories and I didn't know a single writer and I had never taken a single writing class and I had absolutely no connections to anyone in the industry. Um, and I kind of had this, now it seems very romantic looking back at it. At the time, it was <laughs> easy, but I waited tables and I lived in a basement uh, studio that I was renting and I had this little typewriter and I was writing my first stories on it. <laughs> so that's how nice. I was starting out. And then, you know, eventually I got married and um, moved out of the basement. But um, yeah, <laughs> but so in, in the beginning, I knew that I wanted to be a novelist. Um, yeah, some people can do both short stories and novels, but I'm a, a novelist uh, at heart. Um, but I thought um, before I write my first novel, I want to have some publishing credits so that mm -hmm. when I'm an agent, they will take me seriously. And for some reason, 10 was a magic number. So I thought I'm going to write uh, 10 short stories and publish 10 short stories. And then once I have those 10 credits, I'm going to buy a thick book that says, you know, a guide to literary agents and how to break into print. And then I'm going to... <laughs> <laughs> we know it well. Yeah. And that's, that's what I did. I published yeah. 10 short stories. Uh, and then I, um, you know, and then I wrote the first novel. And then I looked for agents who... Um, represented the kind of fiction that took risks um, yeah yeah and, uh, and i was very lucky to you know and then everything just sort of i mean it took some time but uh yeah but then you know i found the agent and i found a publisher so it's, <laughs> and it's it's you know i've been very lucky and here we are yeah well it's you're a beautiful writer i don't i don't know if luck has anything to do with it i want to ask you about <clears throat> your first book Mm -hmm. If we don't, if you don't mind going way back in time to oh. the tale of a lazy princess. Oh, yes. <laughs> <Your research. laughs> so, yeah, I, um, I started writing when I was four and um, you were reading, you were reading books at four years old. Is that right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And writing. But, uh, but uh, the first book I wrote, the chapter book was uh, I was seven years old. And it was uh, called The Tale of a Lazy Princess and a Brave Prince. And uh, <laughs> my father actually typed it up and uh, we bound it. I have it. I wish I thought of bringing it to you. I could show it to you. I still have that. Oh, book. that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I keep it in the shoebox there. So what we started doing is I wrote um, a book a year and we would give it to my mother for her birthday every year. So oh. I have <laughs> Edition continued between the ages of seven and, and like 11 or 12. So I have four or five of these at the very first. And I illustrated them myself. And my father typed up this note saying original orthography and spelling preserved. So it was questionable spelling. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. So um, the very first story was a fairy tale. And it was uh, your traditional um, yeah, princess gets kidnapped by a dragon and uh, rescued by a prince. However, it did have some twists. One was, you know, they say the author's first book is always autobiographical. Uh, <laughs> was not, but it was not my first book. The Lazy Princess was because uh, the whole point was she was very lazy and she did not like doing any housework. Mind you, I was seven. <laughs> she did not want to make her bed and she did not want to uh, cook her father the king breakfast. And so then, <laughs> by a dragon, um, then um, her skills that she did have to master uh, keep her from being eaten. 
because uh, she keeps his house neat and she cooks him meals and then he does not eat her. So when the prince comes to rescue her, it's sort of almost like an afterthought because she was doing perfectly fine by herself. So that was a subversive story also. <laughs> That's book. awesome. Did, did you always know you would someday write a, an adult type fairy tale? Did, was that in the back of your mind? Um, you know, I, I always was interested in kind of merging genres and fantasy and fairy tale and magic. There's so much of it in, in Russian literature. And I grew up reading Russian classics. And mm. you, know, you would think Russian classics, 19th century, it must be all this heavy handed realism. But it really is not. There is Gogol and, you know, there is Dostoevsky and their doubles and their um, just kind of phantasmagorical adventures. So I grew up reading things like that. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, you know, I, perhaps I didn't expect, in fact, this book did come as a surprise. I did not expect to uh, sit down and write about talking mice and princesses. Exactly. Yeah. But I think uh, to some extent in all of my books, there will be something, and I don't want to say magical, I didn't, because, you know, it's surprising, fun, surprising, you know, fantastical, if you will, dreamy, uh, mm. you know, something, something out of this world, something more you know because you know some a different dimension of reality if you will or however you want to put it um, yeah i love it well i want to ask you one more question i know we're we're running short on time but i, I wanted to talk about the the theme of being a woman in a patriarchal society um at, at one point in the book the a couple of the characters are talking about fairy tales and how fairy tales were actually written for women, by women, read to women. Can you talk more about that scene and maybe even talk about this idea that women don't have a soul? That, that was mentioned many times in the book. And so there were some like, you know, powerful women claiming their space. Talk about that for a moment. Yeah, so the book is filled with different um, types of women. Uh, it's almost like different paths that are open to Cinderella. Cinderella herself starts off as a fairly vapid, empty-headed character, intentionally so. She's not supposed to be very likable in the beginning. She's your mm. you know, typical sort of smiling, warbling, well-meaning Disney-like princess. Who yeah, yeah. And grows up, really, or goes out into the real world. Um, but there are other types, and it, the other women in the story also start out as uh, complete stereotypes. There is your witch with, you know, warts on her nose, and there is the, you know, the fussy fairy godmother. And there are yes. <laughs> um, but they all go in very, very different directions, and they all, to my mind, sort of present a different path that are open to women, and there are strong women, and, you know, some of them have families and children and loving husbands, and others are independent and single and, you know, so they're different, different ways of approaching uh, life. But yes, there, there are different takes on the origin of fairy tales that I loved exploring when I read all this theory. And one of them is that, um, one of the theories is that the earliest, the darkest stories were told by peasant women. And they were stories of uh, subversion in many times. There were stories of women rising up in the world and taking their revenge because mm. often if you think of the even the traditional stories that got completely whitewashed and pastel tinted by you know disney and what have Charles perot and what have you even in those stories um we don't know the names of the princess nobody much cares about them they're like these stick figures that are just yeah 
the background. These it's sort of the, shadow men in the background, right? Uh, what was the name of the Sleeping Beauty's prince? We don't know. What was the name of Cinderella's prince? Who cares? But it's mm -hmm. these women who sort of rise up and, you know, move up in the world or accomplish something or go on quests. And it's really these stories that were later kind of transformed into um, more palatable versions and with women who became a lot more passive. You know, the, the very traditional, the, one of the earliest versions of Cinderella, she's, she's a lot more active. And the Disney version, she really doesn't do much of anything. She sweeps the floors and, you know, cries and then cries some more and then is given all these nice things. Well, that's nice. But in the original uh, <laughs> version, She's a lot more active. There's a tree that she asks for help. There's a spirit of her mother. Um, mm. There, it's it, you know, and she there. She actually um, there's some chases and there's some. See, there's a scene where she hides. You know, she does active things. She runs around and does things. <laughs> uh, but that story <laughs> kind of went away uh, later on. That's not the story we know. And so, um, yeah, to me that was kind of fascinating how you know the, the kind of the subversive women of the early early narratives became these you know very passive you know boring princesses and that yeah. was actually you know that my my kind of it, the final impulse for writing this book was my daughter's reaction to these stories because hmm. i read these stories to her when she was little seven or eight she hated the princesses in the story. She said, you're so boring. They don't do anything. Just sit I love her. Oh, you know? <laughs> so that's when it all kind of came together. And I thought, okay, that's what I want to write about. I want to take this yeah. boring princess moping in her tower and take her elsewhere. You know, and Do something with her. Elsewhere. Okay, so one of my favorite scenes in the book, Cinderella is at a crossroads. She can go right and she can, or she can go left. And her decision is so beautiful. And that's when she really, that's when we really start to fall in love with this character. And we won't tell our, our readers or our listeners what, what decision she makes, but that was really a beautiful point where, you know, as women, we're, we have certain choices. Maybe we think we have certain choices, but maybe there's something more to our story than when we realize. Oh, thank you so much for saying it. Yeah, that was to me, to my mind, that was the scene in which the story starts going off in a completely different direction. There's a part one, which we explore mm -hmm. her life in the palace and all the fairy tale trappings. And then there is part two. And that's, yeah, in the, the, at the fork in the road, she can go back to her life as she used to have it, or she can she left, or she can go right to a new happy ending. And mm -hmm. yeah. I won't talk about what she chooses. And we won't tell you what she does. Yeah. <laughs> but that was brilliant. That was really, that was very, um, very cool. Well, I want to hold up this book again. Olga, I loved this conversation. I love your book. Uh, you're a, a lovely writer. I'm so glad I know about you now. And I look forward to whatever you have in the future. I know you must have plans for another book. So I'll look forward to that. And again, thank you for writing this book. Hi, Julie. Hi. Yes, I'm back. And yes, oh my God, this is absolutely my kind of book because I adore the not straight narratives. I mean, yeah. adore books that, you know, that make you think and, and yeah. surprise you and have just the layers and layers that you can go, the rabbit holes you can go down in this is just fantastic. So the brain that you have to create this is <laughs> I know, <right>? amazing. <laughs> 
I was like, oh my gosh. And I think we need to have a spoiler session at some point to talk about the mice and that uh, and and that um, the other way of looking at it. So I think there might be a spoiler session. Maybe when the paperback comes out, you can come back and we'll have yes. a book club. We'll have a book club discussion about it. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. We could right? do that at the festival. Yeah, because yeah. we'll have. We'll yeah, have I wanted to go there, and I'm like, no, we can't go there. We have, yeah. we have to wait. Because that's People the hard part it. about. That's one of the hard parts about this because it's you know we do this at, at launch time, and you know mm-hmm. we're 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 teasing you all out there to make sure that you buy this. But man, yeah. there are so yeah. many questions that we could go down. So we might have to be thinking about a future session here. Um, so yeah, we do have a couple of questions in the um, chat. So. So um, Alta is asking a couple of them. So one of them is, she'd be curious what, Olga, your, um, what you think of Bruno Bet- Bettelheim's theory of um, mm-hmm. fairy tales. Yeah, so in general, the kind of, I don't know, Freudian, not Freudian, I'm not a specialist exactly to say, but that kind of psychological approach, I don't find it personally very useful. Um, obviously, the parts where he talks about fairy tales being um, completely essential reading, I agree. Um, I think that there are archetypes that are are very useful to children as children and to their formation. However, um, a lot of the interpretations, you know, once you start getting into, I don't know, the evil stepmother and Hansel and Gretel is really the children acting out their feelings about the mother and, you know, and the witches the same mother, but even worse. <laughs> Personally, I'm not a you know psychologist that may all have some grounding in reality. I can't judge, but to me as a writer, those are not interesting approaches to explore. Um, so what I was interested in is um, kind of taking these archetypes and twisting them and you know, on a personal level, finding stories that were sufficiently interesting to read to my children that did not fall into these, you know, very stereotypical narratives that, that, that we use. And there are, that's a wonderful thing, that there are so many other alternatives to the traditional fairy tales that Bruno talks about in his book. They think it's called The Uses of Enchantment. Um, yeah, so I, it's an interesting book. Uh, I've read it. I've read a lot of other books. I found some parts of it more fascinating than others. Not a useful approach to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> and she also puts a really good comment in here about, you know, um, the oldest stories being written by peasant women and, you know, um, the old old society's mother-in-laws were extremely powerful. So um, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, and so much the books that I did find fascinating as part of my research were um, books that looked at the real underpinning of a lot of the fairy tales, because for example, the idea of a stepmother, of course, so many women died in labor back in the days or died of hunger or disease that a lot of families are blended families by definition. So that mm. situation where you would have uh, a stepmother with her own children coming into a different household, you know, that was just present left and right. And so many of these stories, there, there's some wonderful books out there that look at um, the actual dark underpinnings of Grimm's fairy tales, you know, the issues of hunger. There are so many of the, you know, dark motives of children being eaten or children starving, that all had grounding in really, really difficult times. So those were really fascinating. Right. And like you said, the very dark, you know, when you're a kid and you have the Disney versions and then when you get the real versions, it's like, 
Oh, <laughs> these are brutal. <laughs> it was been, it was been, and like you said, they come out of brutal times, you know. <laughs> Cinderella sisters being blinded, and I won't talk about what happened to Sleeping Beauty, but it's really not nice in the original version. There was no kiss. It's not nice. It's no. true. It's true. Look no. it up. It's a married king. Oh, yes. I'll have to, yeah. I'd have yeah. to look, I'll have to not, do not, some Googling on that one. I mentioned it in the book, actually. It, it's, it's, that's one of the more brutal stories out there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about the title. Was it always in your brain, The Charmed Wife? No, I went through different titles, but you know, I always do when I work on books. In fact, uh, on my four books, uh, two books had the working titles that ended up being the final titles. Um, it's The Line and 40 Rooms because those are pretty much very straightforward descriptions of what goes on in the books. Uh, but the other two books, I just, uh, I come up with some working titles that make sense to me. Um, and um, in this particular case, um, my working title was actually a fairy tale ending, which oh. ended up being used in the book. Um, it made sense to me because it's a double meaning, right? So mm-hmm. it's a fairy tale ending, like a happy ending, Cinderella story kind of ending, but also a fairy tale that comes to an end. Um, mm. My problem with the title okay. was that, of course, if you follow grammar, uh, you have to either put the hyphen in or not. And mm-hmm. that would, you know, it works when you say it. Changes. it right. But it does not work when you put it down on, on you know, on page. And I do play with that, you know, with that sentence in the book some, but, um, but yeah, but the fact that, you know, you would basically have to go one way or another by emitting hyphen or putting hyphen in that decided me against it. So. Right. Um, and then I was reading in your, um, the acknowledgements that two of your early readers are old friends and they're all named in the three and they're named Olga. That was one of my questions. <laughs> Dang it. I was like, there was another question. Keep, I had. <laughs> yeah. All named Olga. I'm so glad you remembered that. You know, you know how every generation has a name. That right. Jennifer. Knows. Jennifer. Exactly. <laughs> when I was growing up, it was Olga. And I was named Olga for my great grandmother. So my parents had a good reason to name me Olga. And I'm sure you know, there are other reasons for other people being named Olga. Uh, but yeah, uh, my best friend uh, when I was um, growing up in Russia was Olga. Um, and it just so happened that she also is in the United States. She actually is a professor at University of Washington in Seattle. But, yeah. um, you know, but when I was in Russia, she was not the only Olga in my life. Right. There were other Olgas. And, you know, when someone would call me and I would be out, my mother would take a message and it would be a girl called. And I would say, mom, you know, what girl? It doesn't matter. They're all Olga's. And all girls. <laughs> <laughs> anything happened because when I came to the United States, I thought, oh, phew, you know, finally I'm done with all the Olga's. Well, my best Met friend another. here, <laughs> I found the one Olga. <laughs> memory, and, you know, and so that's my, you know, was my that's awesome. and we, we've, we've stayed friends so it's yeah it's it's one of those things which yeah i actually played with it a little bit in uh, 40 rooms there is this kind of alter ego there is this mysterious olga that kind of passes through the book and you don't know if she's real or she's invented and 
you know, for me, it was also a personal idea because there's so many different Olgas in my life, you know. Right. Not, well, so I wasn't sure if it was because Olga is obviously a very, you know, Russian, you know, so I, I wasn't sure if they were friends from here in the United States or if they were all for Zelensky. So here, but she's originally from Russia from and one from my, yeah, from my childhood in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I know we talked about in the green room, so I kind of would like to close this, if you don't mind, um, with, would you mind reading Yes. Oh, yes. For a minute Thank or two. You. And that, I would love that to be the closing for us. Sure. So um, I thought of what section to read because the book is not uniform. It's hard to pick something that really gives you the flavor of the book. Uh, but I found one section uh, where Cinderella is now a cleaning lady, uh, cleaning houses of rich housewives, um, much in a place like Connecticut, uh, much in a time like 1950s. And um, actually, yesterday at an event, I read uh, the Monday uh, Princess. So I will read the Tuesday one today because she goes through her week and every day she cleans a house of a different lady. Um, so they long to talk to me. They act till frosty at first, but the instructional articles they favor in the Good Housekeeping magazine have advised them to keep their distance from their help. Yet after a while, weeks in some cases, mere days in others, they feel reassured by the fact that I have not made any requests for monetary advances, nor have their precious candlesticks or silver spoons gone missing. So they begin to linger in doorways of dining rooms while I dust their displayed wedding china, and they chat about this and that, and then at the end of my day, invite me to partake in cups of tea, relaxing pills, and confessions. I take no pills, share no confessions of my own in return, and offer little encouragement. But little is all that is needed, it seems, and I hear their stories. And perhaps the stories I hear are not precisely the stories they tell, but by now I know enough about love and princes to discern behind the cheery inflections of their genteel fantasies, beneath the cherry veneer of their civilized mid-century dwellings, the dark, heady danger of primitive transformations, the rank odors of beasts prowling through the woods. There are five of them, one for each day of my working week. And then I will skip the Monday one and go on to the Tuesday one. The Tuesday princess, by far the richest of them all, is elegant and sleek, slinking about her suburban mansion on feet soft as paws, lying sprawled on sofas and sophisticated silk dresses, grooming herself, her eyes evasive and smooth, stacks of golden bracelets jingling up and down her skinny arms. She takes the longest to speak to me, and even then, she purrs with half-truths and omissions. Still, I learned that in her youth, she was a beautiful white cat, a royal cat, no less. But she fell in love with a broad-shouldered, happy-go-lucky peasant youth, entirely indifferent to her charms. He was a dog person. And the less he cared, the harder the thorn of love pinned down her soul. She invited him to live in her palace, gave him fine wines to drink, delicacies to eat, velvets and jewels to wear, and still he preferred his slobbery romps with street mutts to an hour of refinement in her discerning feline presence. At last, in despair, she begged him to cut off her head. And when he did, a lovely woman appeared in place of the cat. So, rendered dumb by the shock, the youth gave in and married her right on the spot. And 15 years later, they're married still. But now she often snaps, scratches, and spits at him for she feels poisoned by the hateful recollection of the ease 
with which he granted her long ago wish to behead her. A shrugging, sure, carelessly tossed off. And two, she often catches her ever gorgeous husband looking at her with amiable speculation as though wondering what kind of delightful new being might emerge and grace him with her effervescent presence if he cut off the head of his tiresomely nagging aging wife. So thank bum, you. Bum, bum. Uh, there are many different fairy tales in the book. That's obviously, if you know the story, The White Cat, that's exactly mm-hmm. what happens in the story. It's a French story from the 17th century fairy tale. And there is a magic white cat, and this is exactly what happens. There is a youth, and he cuts off her head, and the princess comes out. And so you, you, you can read the story. Uh, ah. I, uh, I weave a lot, a lot of different stories into it and play with it. It's awesome. That's awesome. Fantastic. That's what I mean. I mean. There's just so many layers to this book, and there are so many things to. Um, so, Olga, I cannot thank you enough. The book is The Charmed Wife. Um much success wished your way with this one. I just um, can't wait to keep sharing it with everybody. Thank yeah. you so for having me. This is such a pleasure. Thank you both. San Diego Writers Festival.com